The early church counted 10 great persecutions unleashed against it by the pagan Roman Empire. The last of those was the worst. It started out when Christians refused to worship the hill gods of Eastern Europe in the reign of Diocletian and Galerius about the year 303 AD. Soon the pagans began to terrorize us across the empire. We were fired, our property was confiscated, our church buildings destroyed, our civil rights were denied. Laws were passed designed to entrap us. Many of us were arrested and a number of us were martyred. But we're Christians and we didn't back down. By the year 310, the carnage had become so bad that even the pagans were tired of it. Galerius revoked the persecution and shortly thereafter became deathly ill himself. And having seen the faithfulness of Christians, he did the odd thing of actually asking Christians if they would come pray for him while he was sick. They did. God's answer was no. And Galerius died a gruesome death that year. Two years later, Constantine became the emperor of the Roman Empire. And that very year declared Christianity a legal religion. After 10 years of the Diocletian persecution and 280 years of the 10 great persecutions, the Christian faith had conquered the Roman Empire. We had conquered it so thoroughly that we actually had a new problem, which was we were now in charge of the world and didn't know how to lead. Over the next 16 centuries, we built a Christianized civilization. We had numerous failures and wide-scale sins, but we actually achieved one of the greatest accomplishments in all of human history. It's not too much to say that virtually every achievement that even pagans enjoy in America today came as a gift from the Christians. Where most of the world celebrates war and violence, we taught the world peace. Where most of the world is uh, discriminatory and marginalizes, we've taught the world love. Where men have always abused women, we taught the world that a man should love his wife. We were the ones who invented the modern healthcare system. We invented public education. We invented the university system. We were the ones who first articulated principles of human rights that are still the basis of Western philosophy and legal systems. We are the inventors of just war theory, of religious tolerance, of equal treatment under the law. We led the abolitionist movement, the suffrage movement, the civil rights movement. We've been there every time there was a flood, every time there was a hurricane, every time there was a pandemic, every time there was a tornado, every time there was a fire, and every time there was a famine. We built the modern West. As historian Tom Holland, who by the way is not a Christian, remarks, it is not possible to understand the West apart from its Christian heritage because we didn't back down. Until the last, last half century or so. Because over the last several decades, a new paganism has arisen in the West, including in the United States. It's aggressive and it's filled with rage. And it has sought to dismantle the Christian consensus that emerged through the centuries in the U.S. Margaret Thatcher once famously remarked, quote, the problem with socialism is that you eventually run out of other people's money, close quote. 
In the same way, the godless secularism that we see in the U.S. today has been able to deconstruct because it is stealing from the treasures that the Christian world created. Soon it will run out of those treasures, and its full ugliness will be on display. And given the rage that we see in secularism, that day may not be very far off. And so I've been trying to warn us for the last four weeks of a rising hostility against the Christian faith in the modern West, particularly in the U.S., that we have faced disinformation and propaganda at, at tons of it, at immense numbers, that we're beginning to feel bullied, where our viewpoints are being marginalized. You can be kicked off social media for expressing Christian viewpoints now. Even socially, we find ourselves sometimes being censored, maybe even self-censoring because we're afraid of the hostility. It does not appear to be too far a stretch to suggest that some careers may become off limits to Bible-believing Christians, that we may find ourselves being marginalized or harassed by officials, that we might lose our licensing or our accreditation, that we may find ourselves actually being told to compromise or lose our jobs, that we may see lawsuits and fines headed our way. I hope these things don't happen, but they already have begun to happen in the U.S. What I want to talk about today is how we survive as a minority community. For if you're looking for a way to describe it, it may be that's the best way to envision what's happened to Christians. That for centuries, centuries, we were the majority community. And I do think it's fair to say that when we were the majority, we didn't always behave so well either. But now we are the minority. Those of us who believe the scriptures and want to live them out are the minority. And as minorities, we are finding ourselves harassed, bullied, marginalized. And so a big question is, how do you live as a minority community? Now, some of you have lived as minorities because of your race or your ethnicity. Many of you have no idea how to live as a minority. I don't know how to live as a minority, but we're about to find out. And so we're going to look to the Scriptures, and we're going to see what the Scriptures say about living as a minority community in a hostile environment. And we'll start with two texts, the first out of chapter 1 of 1 Peter, the second out of chapter 2 of 1 Peter. Let me read to you just excerpts of these. Peter addresses his first Peter, his first letter, to these folks he calls exiles. So he's writing to people who live in what we call Turkey. They're Christians scattered across these various provinces of Turkey. And he says... Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, I don't want you to forget this, we are actually a chosen people. That's going to be really worth remembering when you feel like an exile. Though the world might exile us, God has actually chosen us. We are His elected people. And then He says, you're exiles scattered throughout the provinces. And then in chapter 2, He says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. Now, we're going to unpack this language throughout the course of this sermon. But I just want to pause and say that Peter rightly identifies the minority group, the Christian group in the Roman Empire by these terms, foreigner, exile. If you look at the translations, they have all sorts of ways to translate these terms, pilgrims, sojourners, temporary residents, etc. And what we must understand is that to pagans in America now, you are a foreigner and an exile. And I just have to say this, it appears that they weren't all that serious about diversity and tolerance after all. Because now that they are a majority community, they don't intend to tolerate you and they don't want the diversity of your opinion. 
So we are foreigners and exiles, but to God we are chosen ones. And what we must do is make the decision that we're going to live as God's chosen people in exile in a hostile culture. And I want to say there are a lot of strategies that are really important, strategies that apply to your family. What do you do when family members begin to drift off and they actually pose to you the question, accept the new me or I will reject you? How do you respond to that? What do you do when you get a memo from the HR department telling you you're going to have to start using this kind of language? How do we deal with a culture where our kids come home from school and they say, guess what we learned today in school? And it's something that is totally opposite what you have taught them as a Christian. Those are strategies I want us to get into on Monday night, October the 18th. It will be another one of those two-hour sessions. It will not be live broadcast. You'll need to be here at 6.30. We will record it, but I really encourage you to come because I want to talk about strategies. How do we deal with these, uh, these common problems now that we face as Christians? We're going to get down to the strategic level. We're not going to do that today. Instead, I want to talk more about principles. And the question we seek to answer is, how do we live as exiles? And let's start back with our text, 1 Peter chapter 2, where Peter says, friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, first of all, to abstain from sinful desires which wage, against, wage war against your soul. So I'm going to start here. The absolute first thing we must do is refuse to assimilate. And I just want to remind you, the greatest threat to a minority community is not discrimination. That's a serious problem. I'm not denying that. What I'm suggesting is it's not the greatest problem. The greatest problem for a minority community is assimilation. It's that they will lose who they really are. When we have people who immigrate to Rutherford County, let's say from Asia particularly, from Thailand or from Laos or other places, their parents' worst nightmare, don't take this the wrong way, is that their kids will become like you. <laughs> that they realize they've lost their kids and they lose their values. One of the greatest threats to your faith is not your temptations. It is the fact that you might compromise. Compromise robs the world of its last and only witness of a better way, and it robs you of the Holy Spirit. And so John puts it this way. He says, do not love the world. Do not love anything that is of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. So what we have to do is we say, first of all, if I am a minority community, I am not going to compromise with the majority community. I'm not negotiating. The, listen, the Christian faith is not open to negotiation. It is not open for negotiation. It is a done deal. You're in or you're out, but it's not negotiable. Now, I want to say the very first thing in refusing to assimilate is say no to the bullies. You know, when we get bullied for our Christian positions, don't you want to see somebody just stand up and say, no, I'm not going to do that? Tell me what you want to tell me. I'm not going to do it. I have to tell you a short story. I hesitate to tell it because it could be taken all kinds of weird ways. Um... Yeah, the only time I ever danced in my life, I mean danced, was at my daughter's wedding because she asked me to dance and I can't say no to her. Now, dancing's not in the Bible as a sin. You know that. But when I was growing up, the church, in order to protect people like me from lust, told me I shouldn't dance because sometimes dancing leads to lusting. It didn't at the wedding, by the way, but anyway. I have no idea where that came from. I wish I hadn't said that. <laughs> Roll that one back a little bit. Anyhow, my church taught me that you shouldn't dance. 
I hadn't even really thought about it until one day I showed up. I don't remember seventh or eighth grade, but I was in junior high. I showed up at school. Uh, John, uh, it was Thurman Francis Junior High at the time. That's what they called it. And uh, it was a Monday, and the coaches announced, hey, in PE this week, we're going to all learn how to dance. That's the first time I really actually had to think about it. And I can tell you, I got like so hot and I got, I turned into, I started panicking. I can remember shaking because all I could think of was, wait, that's a sin. I'm not supposed to do that. Now, again, I want you to know the Bible doesn't say that, but I was being taught that and I appreciate my church. I, I have no complaints. I love the church that raised me. So I'm not even complaining. They were trying to protect me and I didn't know what to do. I knew if my parents found out my dad would, he'd punish me. So I picked one of the coaches, there were about three or four coaches, there's probably three classes combined, and I went to one of the coaches and I said to the coach, uh, is there, I can't dance, is there a way I can not do this? And she said, don't worry, that's what we're going to do, we're going to teach you how to dance. And I said, I said, well, no, what I'm trying to say is I can't dance. And she said, I know, but for the next week we're going to teach you how to dance. And I'm like, I'm literally trembling at this point. And I said, no, what I'm saying is I think it's a sin for a Christian to dance. And you'd have thought I just told her that I was a Martian or something. She looked at me. She said, everybody in this room is a Christian, which was probably true at that point back then in some way or another. And I said, I can't do it. It's a sin. And I don't want to throw anybody under the bus, but I'm telling you the facts of what happened. She said, hey, guys, she gets the whole class's attention. She said, David thinks you're all sinners for dancing. And she didn't say it to be funny, and they didn't take it as funny. And I mean, I just about fainted. I could not believe that she had done that. And then another coach comes up to me right there in the middle of everybody, puts his hands on my shoulders, puts his face up to my face. And he was a member of my church. And he said to me, can't you just give in this one time? Look at how they're looking at you. Can't you just give in? Now, up to that point, I wasn't going to dance because I didn't want to get a spanking from my dad when I got home. But when he said that to me, Oh, my goodness. I decided then and there, I will die before I dance for you. And I told him that. I said, mister, I'm not going to dance here. I'm not going to dance now. I'm not going to dance yesterday. I'm never going to dance. Fire me. Throw me out of school. Fail me. But I will not dance. Do what you have to do. And they all stared at me. But let me tell you what happened to me. I realized that there was actually courage and strength in me I didn't know I had. And once I took a stand, it's like, I'm ready, but I don't care what you do now. I found my strength because I stood up to what I considered to be bullying. You know what they said? They, said, they announced to the class, David's going to go in the corner and he's going to write off all week, which I don't even know if they do that anymore. But she's just sit down and you just write a bunch of nonsense, which I will not dance. I don't know what it was. They sent me to the corner. I start heading for the corner and guess what happens? Twelve more people raised their hand and said, we don't believe in dancing either. Can we go with them? You know what they needed? They needed one person to stand up to the bully. That's all they needed. And I'm saying that we just need some heroes who will stand up today and say, no, I'm not going to do that. You're not going to make me. I follow Jesus. It's not negotiable. No. And you know, a lot of, bull a lot of demons run in the face of a no. They don't really like conf confronting Jesus. The demons don't. So I'm just saying, say no to the bullies. You're a Christian. God Almighty's on your side. And if your daughter asks you to dance at a wedding, you got my permission. Next, do not love money. I'm going to say this. We, and by the way, that's the longest story, so we're going to move quickly now. But I do want to say this. 
You need to go on and decide right now that God is going to provide for you because some of you are going to be given a choice at your work. Compromise your faith or lose your job. That's coming. By the way, you, you want to know when you're going to get your warning? You just did. This is probably the only warning you're going to get. You're going to have somebody call you in, some boss or somebody's going to call you in and say, we're going to sponsor, we're sponsors of the Gay Pride Parade this next June. We need you to be there. That's your warning. And you need to decide up front how you're going to respond when you get that. How, do you, would you rather have your career and your job or would you rather have your loyalty to Jesus? You may have to make that decision. I'm just saying up front, you need to go on and decide that Jesus is right when he says not you should not serve God and money. He doesn't say you shouldn't serve them both. He says you cannot serve them both. You're going to make a choice. So we need to decide up front, I am not going to love my money. Money is intended to be used, never to be loved. It's a gift to be used, never to be loved. Number three, refuse to live by pagan pleasures. This is what Peter says. He says, you need to say no, do not conform to these pleasures of paganism. And by the way, you know why pagans live by pleasure? Because it's pleasing. <laughs> it's pleasurable. That's why. That's why everybody wants it. I remember some guy told me when I was a teenager, he said, you know, he was talking about people at parties. He said, you know, they think they're having fun, but that's not fun. And I remember thinking, well, it looks like fun. I mean, they look like, I, I think they are having fun, actually. I think it's quite pleasing. That's why they're all laughing and having so much fun. But we as Christians have actually been taught that there are certain kinds of pleasures that are destructive regardless of how fun they might be. I just want to advise you guys. The biggest danger for you compromising who you are as a Christian will be found on your screen. It's on your screen. You know why? Because you spend about seven hours looking at a screen every day. In fact, if you're an adult, you look at your phone an average of once every eight to ten minutes. If you're a teenager, you look at your phone an average about once every 40 seconds. And that's not an exaggeration. And that thing is socializing you. It is teaching you what to think and how to think. And it's a terrible teacher. And that's one reason why the early church actually, they went further than dancing. The early church actually wouldn't let people go to the theater. I mean, if you went to the theater in the first three centuries of Christianity, they'd probably throw you out of church because they understood what Plato and his Republic said, which is through entertainment, through the media, we be, we're, we're subversed into a different set of ethics and values. So you need to think very hard about what you will let your eyes see and what you let the eyes of your children say. This is what, what they see. This is what the psalmist says, 119. Turn my eyes from worthless things. Guys, I'm telling you, when you become desensitized to unholy conduct because you keep sitting in front of a screen, you've already lost the battle. You know how you'll know it? It's so easy. This is shooting fish in a barrel. You'll say, I don't see anything wrong with, and whatever you say after that, I guarantee you is wrong. Because you're trying to justify yourself. I don't see anything wrong with. That's the start. That's how we justify ourselves. And then last, this is a tough one. But you cannot make an idol of your family and be faithful to Jesus. Families matter. In fact, I'm excited about the fact that pretty soon we're going to talk to you about hiring a, an adult minister or a family minister, someone who can help us with our marriages because Satan's coming after our marriages. 
We want a senior level cabinet post person who can help us build strong marriages. North Boulevard, God willing, is going to hire somebody like that really soon. But let's not talk about it right now. Families are super important. But remind yourself that Satan, therefore, will use your family as your most vulnerable point. He's going to attack you at the point of your family. Already, secularists are trying to secularize your children. They're telling your children that you're the problem, that Christianity is the problem. It's all over the place. It's in all their entertainment. It's on all their screens. It's in many of their school systems that you are the problem. And one day you may have to make a choice between Jesus Christ and your family. And I'm telling you, you have to do this with love. But if you were baptized, you already made that choice. Here's how Jesus puts it. He said, well, you think I came to bring peace? By the way, does Jesus bring peace? Well, he does to those who follow him. But he did not bring peace to the world. He came to make it clear, you're, you're on one team or the other. You're not straddling the fence with him. He said, I did not come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. In each of these texts, we're being taught, you were baptized. When you were baptized, you made an oath. You will follow and obey King Jesus, come what may. You cannot compromise that oath now. And I'm telling you, we'll talk about this Monday night, October 18. But you are doing your kids no favor if you compromise. You are not doing your kids a favor. You think you are. All you're teaching your kids is that their faith is not very important. That's what you're teaching them. If you compromise, that's what they hear. Okay, I was right. It's not that important after all. So we have to decide we're not going to make an idol of our families. Now, we're going to keep moving. And again, I can move pretty quickly through here. But look at, look at the second part of living as an exile. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they may accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. If I were to put that in a bullet point, this is how I'd put it. In fact, this is so much how I'd put it, this is exactly how I did put it. Cancel the vacation you've been taking from the soul-saving mission of Jesus. Listen, when everybody was a Christian in America, quote, you didn't have to do evangelism. All you had to do was talk them out of instrumental music. And we actually learned how not to do evangelism. We actually learned that disciple making is not that big a deal. I want you to know the vacation's over. And if you're not on the soul-saving mission of Jesus, you are a sitting duck for compromise. Here's Jesus' mission. He says, the Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. If you follow Jesus, this needs to be your mission. If this is not your mission, you're not following Jesus. It's really that simple. Jesus' mission was to seek and save that which is lost. If you're not seeking and saving that which is lost, you're not following Jesus. Because that's what he did. I'm not trying to judge you. I'm just trying to let you see the truth. If you say, I follow Jesus, then you need to be seeking and saving that which is lost. And here's the problem for a lot of us. We, because we were on vacation from the mission of Jesus, we all adapted a different mission. Here is our mission. I just want a nice house with a nice picket fence and a good wife and kids who are good kids who marry well and a successful career. If that's your mission in life, persecution is going to really threaten you because the world can take Take that away from you. 
That's why it's the wrong mission. You've got a mission that evil people can take away from you. And so when you get put on the spot and you've got to make a decision, do I stand for Jesus or lose my job? You're going to keep your job. You're going to back down on Jesus because your mission in life was a white picket fence. But imagine if your mission in life is making disciples and someone says you've got to make a decision, job or following Jesus. Oh, that's a no-brainer for me. My mission wasn't this job anyway. Here you can have it. Take this job and offer it to somebody else. As Jesus says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. Luke 7 tells a good story that will illustrate this. Jesus goes and has dinner with a Pharisee. And a sinful woman, that's obviously, every, 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 evidently she was a prostitute and everybody in town knew it. That's our best guess. I don't know. She comes in and she starts weeping. She's obviously repentant. And she starts to wipe Jesus' feet with her hair and her tears. And the Pharisee sees the woman and says, well, if Jesus was really a prophet, he would know. Okay, here's my question, guys. Y'all with me? Y'all still with me? Who is a sinful woman? If you're a Pharisee, she's a sinner who ought to be avoided. Some of you feel like you grew up in these very strict legalistic churches. I don't feel like I did, but I understand that some of you did, and I'm not judging you on that. And you've been trying to get away from it, and you feel like you were raised by Pharisees. We don't want to be a Pharisee. The Pharisee saw the sinful woman and said, that filthy woman, that she's the problem with this community. You know what the pagan said? The pagan said, sin, that's not a sin. We ought to write laws. We ought to make her a celebrity. That's what the progressive Christian says too. We need to change what the Bible says so that her sin becomes a point of honor. You know what the culture warrior says? I knew she was a Democrat. I knew she was. I'm going to put something on Facebook about her or Republican if you'd prefer to go that direction. That's what the culture warrior does. The culture warrior has not seen a human being. The culture warrior sees an idea that he can fight over. And he puts a screed on Facebook and he sets the world right. You know what the cultural Christian says? This is the person who wants the white picket fence. That's their goal in life. They say, hey, I don't agree with her lifestyle, but I'm going to be nice to her. Everybody in this scenario has missed the mission of Jesus. Everybody missed it. Because what does Jesus say? Your sins are forgiven. And they say, who is this? And he says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You know what Jesus says about the sinful woman? That she is a sinner that I'm going to save. Right. Now, I've been asked this question even recently. Someone asked me the question and said, look, I have a job opportunity. It's with a group of people. Their sexual ethics are very different from mine, and they're very in your face about it. Should I take the job? I've been asked that question. I'm going to give you my response. I may be wrong, and you don't have to believe this. But here's my response. If your goal in life is a white picket fence, do not take that job because you're, you're going to compromise. If your goal in life is to seek and save that which is lost, which is what Jesus' goal in life was, absolutely take it. We're all for you. Take it and tell us how it's going. We're going to pray for you and we're going to win those people to Jesus. It's all a matter of whether or not you've decided, I'm going to follow the Jesus who seeks and saves the lost because... If you save your life, you will lose it. And I'll just remind you, the best defense is a good offense. Guys, if we face hostility, you know what we're not going to do? We're not going to build stronger walls. We're not going to huddle up in fear. We're not going to internalize despair. 
We're not going to grieve the world. We are going to go out there and kick down the gates of hell. That's what we do. We're Christians. That's how the Christian world flipped the Roman Empire. They didn't do it by hiding in monasteries. The monastic movement didn't even start till later. They did it by going out there and making disciples of people. They were on the offense, not on the defense. Let me just tell you church-wide how that can look. Church-wide. This is a risk because you'll start thinking, whew, I'm off the hook. He's talking about the church. We planted something like 120 churches until about three years ago. And since about the last three or four years, uh, this is according to Glenn Robb, who keeps up with our numbers. In April of 2021, we had planted 355 churches. That's about a little bit more than 200 churches in the last three years. Glenn told me the other day, we're now up to 500 churches that we planted. We're planting a church a day. And you know what that means? That means that rather than saying, well, let's hold our money, prepare for the lawsuits, let's all huddle up and pray in silence and hope that nobody comes. No, we're going to go out there and kick down the gates of hell. That's what we're going to do. We're on the offense. We're not on the defense. Hey, we don't play defense. We don't play defense. We play offense. And that's why I just want to throw this out there. If you go to West Campus, we're going to build that building, God willing. Like we're going to kick down the gates of the west part of Rutherford County. This is who we are. Jesus' last words in the Gospel of John include this. Peace be with you. The Father sent me, and now I am sending you. So, guys, if you want to know how to stand firm in the middle of a hostile culture as exiles, the answer is you're an activist exile. Go out there and kick down the gates. We don't hide. We don't hide. And we don't play defense. We play offense. Well, I'm going to run out of time. I just want to pause and say, live such good lives. I want to focus on that good lives thing because the last thing I want to say is this. Bask in the rich culture of Christ. We've got a culture. We don't have to have the pagan culture. Like they don't, they, we don't have to watch all their movies, listen to all their music, uh, make all their heroes our heroes. Let their stories become our stories. Let their myths drive our lives. We've got a culture, and it's a lot better than the pagan culture around us. We have the best music in the world. We have the best art in the world. We're the ones who built the hospitals. I've already gone through all this. You, I grew up in Smyrna, Tennessee. You think the guys who founded Smyrna in 1850-something knew anything about Izmir, Turkey? I guarantee you they never even heard of it. But they knew about Smyrna because they had read it in their Bible. We are the ones who built this culture. This is the culture we built. We have Christ's culture. You don't need to know what Britney Spears is doing. Who cares? Really, who cares? But we got heroes right here. At our first service was sitting Bill Sloan. Bill's son told me, Kirk told me, uh, I don't know, when we were going through Deuteronomy, he said about his dad, so this is Sloan, Honda, Yamaha, Honda, Yamaha, Suzuki, Kawasaki, Kimco, I don't know what all. They keep going. The list keeps going. That's Bill, gentlest, humblest man in the world. His son told me a while back, he said, you know, I think my dad's the only man I know who could have gotten to heaven on the Old Testament. He's that good a man. I wish I had time to tell you some stories of what I saw Bill Sloan do as an elder reaching his pocket. He's giving money to everybody. The times that this gentle soul of Bill, I can remember an elders meeting where one time somebody was really just not living a faithful life. And they kind of, we were trying to corner him and it was a round room. You can't corner a man in a round room. 
And finally, Bill Sloan, gentle, sweet Bill Sloan, spoke up and said, looked this guy in the eye and he said, okay, enough of this. We're talking about the destiny of your soul. And you're going to talk with us about that. Guys, that's my hero. Those are my heroes. Those are our legends. Well, I don't care what Britney Spears is doing. God bless her. I hope somebody brings her to Jesus. But we have our own heroes. We have our own stories. Why do we need their stories? We, we have, think of our music. Just think about when you show up here. And by the way, let me just say, I just quote, I'm going to move down through here. I'm going to get to this last text. Well, I'll get to it in a second. Our language is language of prayer and language of praise. Think about when you came in this morning. Maybe you were tired, didn't want to go to church. I know how you feel. And you show up, and when you get here, all of a sudden the music just like lifts your soul. And all of a sudden you're just like, that's our language. Our language is the language of praise and prayer. Our language elevates. Our language unites. Our language is filled with the Holy Spirit. That God is working in our language. We don't need to be ashamed of Christian culture. Pagans ought to be ashamed of pagan culture. Why are we ashamed? Why are you ashamed to say that every baby deserves a father and a mother? Why are you ashamed of that? Why are we ashamed of that? Everybody knows that a father and a mother is better than two fathers. Why are we ashamed of that? We don't need to be ashamed of that. Why are we ashamed to belong to a religion that teaches that grace is real and forgiveness can really happen? Why are we ashamed of that? There's nothing about our faith that we ought to be ashamed about. We have have an awesome culture. Embrace the culture of Jesus. We're minorities, but man, think of what we have. I just wanted to throw these two in, and they no longer fit because I went off on a tirade. But they're actually resources. So Minnow, Go Minnow is a, it's like you can, if your kids are going to watch a lot of screen time, which they really don't need to do, at least make sure it's good, healthy stuff. We just bought a subscription for every single one of you, including you online, to Right Now Media. It's just endless, the resources, the Christian resources, when we were raising the kids. We used to tell them stories. We had all four of these books, 10 Girls Who Changed the World, 10 Boys Who Changed the World. They're all Christian stories, Billy Graham, Brother Andrew, Adam, uh, Judson, so forth, 10 Boys Who Made History, 10 Girls Who Made History. Those were the stories I wanted my kids to grow up with. I wanted my kids to grow up hearing about Christian stories, not pagan stories. Why would I want them to get pagan stories? We're Christians. So I just say with this text again, Our language is the language of prayer. Our language is the language of praise. We are minorities. It is true. But oh my goodness. Christians have always in one way or another been pilgrims. Didn't we used to sing that song? Here we are, but straying pilgrims. We are. And we're waiting. We're searching for a land yet to come. And that's why God's not ashamed to be called our Father. So if you're looking for a set of principles that will help you, they've been on the wall, and we've printed 5,000 copies of them, and I really want to encourage you now to take this baby and put it in your Bible and start living by it if you haven't. We really tried to distill down to eight principles, a compass, if you will, for how to stand in a hostile world. I don't think we have a map. We really can't predict what's going to happen. Listen, God could send a revival. It changed the whole nation. 
In two years, we could all be looking at this sermon series laughing and saying, that David sure yells a lot. Ha, ha, ha. I hope it happens. If it doesn't happen, these principles are going to matter because these are points on a compass. So I just want to say, these are what Christians do. We stand firm in Jesus. And at your baptism, you swore an oath that you would never deny him. We Christians, we obey the scriptures and we don't compromise them. We Christians, we live a holy life and we don't conform to the world. We make disciples and we do not betray the gospel. We rescue sinners, but we do not approve of sin. You do not approve of sin. Love sinners, but you do not approve of sin. We Christians bless our enemies. We're not known as fear mongers. Why do we got to be afraid of God's in charge? We don't hate our enemies. We don't curse our enemies. We love them and bless them. We laugh. Thank you. <laughs> we rejoice in our sufferings and we never become bitter. We Christians put our hope in Jesus and never in this world. This world was always going to pass away, at least after Adam and Eve's fall. And God's going to issue in a new one. And when the new one comes, those who have stood firm in Jesus will stand firm for eternity. So let's stand up and we'll sing.